and welcome again to another episode of our Grant Thornton COP28 podcast series, part of the Financial Services Risk and Regulation podcast. Today, I'm joined by Chris Dodwell here at COP28 in Dubai. Well, in fact, we are actually this time at the Sustainable Finance Forum, which is an adjacent event to um, the COP28, which is most of the financial services conversation happening today. Um, Chris is the Global Head of Policy and Advocacy at Impacts Asset Management and co-heads the Impact Sustainability Centre after a long stint in the UK government, where he led the UK implementation of the European Carbon Trading System and the UK delegation to the international climate negotiations, and then a career as a Director of Climate Change at Ricardo Energy and Environment. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk to the podcast. I'm very <laughs> pleased to be here. <laughs> Um, before we kick off with some more COP28 specific questions, if you like, could you just briefly talk us through um, your specific role at Impacts? Sure. So um, it might be worth just saying a word about Impacts first. So Impacts is a specialist investor that focuses on the transition to a sustainable economy. We're 25 years old this year and um, we um, manage now around... 50 billion dollars worth of institutional money so we're basically investing money on behalf of pensioners uh, and other individuals who kind of are represented by those investors um, and we're we are very performance focused so we're not an impact investor we're basically trying to achieve returns for those investors that are better than um, they'll get in other parts of the market. But the business is is firmly founded on the conviction that actually the transition to a sustainable economy is going to yield better returns and be more successful than if you invest in the old economy. So it's a really interesting, interesting environment in which to work. Um, my team um, the policy and advocacy team provides advice to the investors. The, the, the portfolio managers around what's happening in terms of new policy developments. So that can inform both, you know, what are the long term trends that they need to keep an eye on and what are the potential companies and industries that we might want to invest in the future, but also some of the short term stuff around, you know, the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act or something like that. Um, so we're providing that direct advice, but we're also um, uh, active on the advocacy side. So that means that we're trying to lean into the conversation that governments are having, try to help suggest ideas and um, provide sounding boards on what we think are going to help create the markets of the future and mobilise the private capital that everyone is kind of saying that they need in order to kind of drive forward the transition. And I'm also now just to come, we've, we've joined up this my that team with another team that does the internal kind of sustainability uh, metrics and the process that we have for assessing individual firms that we're going to invest in and they do the engagement with the companies we invest in so it's it's really nice to have brought all of that together in the, the sustainability center nice since you have been converted i am uh, well, I, I, yeah four years in four <laughs> years in so it's four years i've been in it but it was my first financial services role so literally i spent 20 25 years working on policy and now um yeah as you say i, I can talk the talk a little bit well, you ha you have been part of the process for a long time, and yeah. you and I know that. You did mention to me that this is what your 15 COP, 14, 14th COP. So I'm exactly it's COP 28, and I've been to 14 of them, which is a 50% record. So yeah. I'm like, that's I have to try and maintain that, but that doesn't mean I don't have to come every year. That's true. 
Um, so how do you compare or how do you see this COP this year, for example, versus what you've observed before? Is that any different in any way? It's yeah, it's, really quite interesting. So it's it's really it is it is really different. And actually they've been changing over the years, but this one, and I'll come on to the reason why this one is particularly different. So I spent a few years as you you would I spent a few years when I was um, running the negotiation team. And as you can imagine, that's pretty full on. Um, we were part of the European Union back then. So we had to agree all of our positions with the European Union. Then you had to kind of move them through the, the process. Um, and that was in the run up to um, to Copenhagen. So it was kind of the years when we were trying to move on from the Kyoto Protocol to a more inclusive agreement that would include all parties. Um, and then I spent um, a few years advising um developing countries uh, ahead of paris uh, and after paris around the the form of their nationally determined contributions the ndcs as part of your role in gk government so no this was when i was with ricardo okay. so we had we we had a uh, some money from people like the un development program to go and advise countries on effectively on how to how to sort of um provide them with the data that would allow them to make informed decisions about the levels of ambition that they wanted to put in yeah. So we ended up supporting with 50, 16 countries with a combined population of 600 million people, which was pretty, it was pretty amazing process. But it, Nigeria and Bangladesh, and once you've done those, you get up to the hundreds of millions quite quickly. But um, that was an incredible privilege to work with um, people that wanted to contribute to the process, but actually had much more on the adaptation side that they were wanting to talk about um, than the mitigation side. And I guess the the difference between then and now is, again, we were start. What's what's really happened post Paris is that there's been an appreciation of the opportunities that lie in the transition to mm. net zero, and that is a um, massive shift. So it, we now. It, the language of opportunity was trying to be used, but it, people weren't really convinced by it. But if you look at what's happened now in the in the global economy, you know it's clear that transition is underway. You've got many more business people here. You've got a lot. It used to just be the negotiators, and then them trying to find time away from the negotiations to participate in some of these side events. Now you have. Um, a whole business of side events yeah. <laughs> doing and the negotiators don't really need to do that anymore they can focus on that so there is a a huge opportunity message that yeah. that didn't exist and the other thing that's changed which we kind of have got to remind ourselves is despite the fact that we're we're worried we're worrying we're not going fast enough is you know because of this effort to shift things to renewables um global emissions are are reaching the stage where they, they may peak. You know, there's a report out just before the COP that um, they will peak in 2023 globally. And China, even China's emissions are going to peak, probably going to peak next year. So that is an amazing change, if you think about it. Um, uh, that so 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 that atmospherically, I guess there's a there's a more upbeat aspect to this, despite the fact that there is real concern around the pace of change. Um, but the big check, the big thing about this COP is that we are having to really confront the fact that we're doing quite well on building the next economy, but we are doing far less well on dismantling the old economy and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And 
obviously because this is in a um in a, a uh, in a country in a with... country that 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 derives a lot of its national income from fossil fuels that issue has been front and center there's been a lot of controversy about it um and the cop presidency so yeah that we could probably talk a bit more about that but that i would say is a is a major difference we there was one cop back in 2012 in qatar um but I think that, and that was slightly odd. I did attend that one, it, 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 but it wasn't so stark this issue. And um, you know, we've had all the reports around investment continuing into new production capacity from all the national oil companies. You know, that this the, the production gap report it's called. When what we're being told by the IEA is that we don't need any more reserves. So there are. Um, there's a lot more evidence down that's actually kind of reminding us that we have to do more to phase out fossil fuels. Yeah, that's clearly the case. And it's interesting because on one hand, they have got this huge responsibility to sort of to respond to that challenge. On, on the other hand, they don't want to be understated. They want to be quite front and centre at the, the conversation, but they're clearly not yet prepared to fully align themselves to that commitment. So I think that's made for some really, as I say, interesting controversies. It's it certainly quite commercial compared to what I thought would be or much more commercial if we can discuss whether that's a positive or negative I think I can see the actually collaboration benefits the opportunities that you mentioned but do we really need 117,000 people to be here burning emissions to get over here I don't know it's a good question and it's a question that I thought myself before mm -hmm. I I came I, I I actually I actually was wasn't going to come um because you know for every trip you make for something like this you have to kind of think about what's the benefit of doing it and um i've been really surprisingly pleased with the things that i have got out of the trip actually um uh, one thing that i wouldn't have had a feel for if i hadn't been here is the extent of the conversations around adaptation uh ironically um so um i think that getting the loss and damage stuff agreed early on um was really positive for the building trust and for making progress but also it has made everyone kind of think about uh, about this issue and around well actually are we giving sort of what does loss and damage mean where does loss and damage start where does adaptation finish um and how do we scale up investment in adaptation and how do we really get you know the the sort of acceptance of the fact that this isn't a, an alternative to mitigation but it's something that we necessarily have to do because the climate has changed we've all experienced so much of that over the last two or three years that it's no longer a, a choice so i there have been some great conversations that i've been in around how we scale up private investment in that area and i think having those together with lots of people who wouldn't otherwise meet is actually going to really speed up that process. Um, the pennies dropped that we need national policy, but also we need things like the insurance industry kind of leaning into the issue. And we we need to conceptually work out how to kind of communicate these things to corporates. That has that has been really helpful to have, you know, I've done a few sort of afternoons of just sitting down and talking with groups of 20, 30 people where we're all trying to solve these sorts of problems together. And that dialogue, I think, is really helpful. Yeah. And, and I guess from your point of view, what is 
critical to get agreed at this particular COP in terms of negotiated outcomes? Yeah, I mean, the, the success and failure of this COP will be judged on whether, the, whether people are convinced by the response to the global stock take. Mm. So the global stock take, you know, it made it clear that we are not moving fast enough um, and that the pace of change has got to increase. So I actually think the things that the presidency put forward around um, uh, the global decarbonisation agenda yeah. are really great. The tripling of renewables, the doubling of energy efficiency, even the the sort of uh, activities they put forward around um, zero methane oil and gas sectors. All of these take, if they're successful, they take gigatons out of the kind of the global emissions each year. So the the tripling of renewables is that's a third more than we're currently um, projected to have in 2030. And likewise, the, um, and that's, I think, about th between three and five gigatons. Um, the, um, the, the methane piece is really important. Methane's a short-lived pollutant. If we can actually drop our methane emissions, we will see a change to um, very the climate quickly. very quickly. Um, it's something that we did, you know, we did research on Back when I was in the UK government, so like 12 years ago, we were kind of when the first UNEP gap report was coming out and we were really, you know, taken by that. But we've done nothing really about methane since then. And so, you know, you kind of go, oh, doesn't it just allow the oil and gas sector to continue? But the transition will mean that those industries are going to continue to, to operate um, for some time yet. So I think those are really material. But the, 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 the challenge is going to be whether we can get work out a stronger way of getting those the commitments made like that at, at a, either by coalitions of the willing or by um, the whole group, the whole community, and therefore in the decision text, yeah. how fast we can get those pushed down into national policies. So that's the other thing I would, I'm really wanting to see is a stronger link between the, um, those overarching kind of decarbonisation goals and I'd put the halting of deforestation by 2030 into that as well because that was a kind of that the 20 uh, a COP26 commitment how do we get that put into um the the NDC updates how do we we've missed all the goals sorry to interrupt you on, on all the targets on the deforestation commitments well, we haven't uh, the ones that we made yeah. previously. Yeah, exactly. And we've got we've got a bit more of an accountability mechanism for this current one, the Forest Climate Leaders uh, Pledge. And there's a bunch of things that um, that the private sector and investors are doing around deforestation as well to try to sort of make this happen. But it it, it really needs to almost all all of these policies can't just be left to um financial institutions and corporates with net zero targets there are policy levers and i'll maybe we could come yeah, and talk yeah. about some of those that need to ask about um, <laughs> so the other thing though is um is that the the you know the fossil fuel phase out the signaling on that i think could be incredibly material because then if you get dates put in and if those dates then need to be put into national plans then you can have um, those companies that are investing in fossil fuels will need to basically start to consider risks of stranded assets. They'll have to, you know, put that into their pricing models, uh, consider when they'll probably want to move out of those companies. How do we actually construct ways to support developing countries to meet those dates, you know, and, and that 
that could be really that could be a, a real galvanizer as well. I agree. I've, I'm really fascinated by this conversation about the phasing out versus phasing down. I'm really curious to see where we land and yeah. I hope for the best. But and it, you, you did mention already adaptation. And as you pointed out, a lot of the focus on this cope has been around mitigation and adaptation in particular. What do you think are the key levers that we need to pull to make sure that we actually make a proper uh, transition and we accelerate the process and, and the pathways? So, um, so what I would really like to see is national um, policies that incorporate sectoral roadmaps for um, each sector and speak to the transition, not just the technologies and infrastructure we're going to need to decarbonize, but also the the adaptation priorities for those sectors. I think if we could if we could start to develop those, that would be and the national adaptation plans are falling short on that. So if we could use the NDC update process to um, develop those roadmaps, but also trigger well, either put down the policies if they're already in place, but but trigger discussions and development of the policies, that would be that that's 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 the the ideal scenario for us as an investor because then you've got um, real clarity about things like the amount of you know you'd be able to put together a bunch of NDCs in a particular region and see demand for solar or or wind in a region and an investor that's specializing in that is going to go okay i can see what the accessible market's going to be it's really worth me getting involved in those projects and building up uh, an understanding of how to do business in that part of the world how the risks that i'll need to uh, get a handle on whether i'm going to need to do deals with development banks in order to achieve this so just get, getting the countries to realise that national policy is their way to attract finance and that what they put in their NDCs is really, and I think we started that process pre-Paris. So that was definitely the, the carrot in the process was actually with the countries we were working with, quite a lot of it was already in their national development plans or their national economic plans. And we basically said, look, you know, in Bangladesh, it was a matter of, well, take the energy efficiency and renewable targets that you've already stated you want to achieve, put them in your NDC, and but but say that the NDC is conditional on getting some development aid. Um, but that wasn't done. It, we, we've, we're 12 years on. People are um, sorry, not 12 years on. We're, we're eight years on from 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 Paris. Um, People like the UK, we've got things like the Committee on Climate Change that has kind of done that analysis of those sectoral roadmaps. We um, we know what policies we need to put in place. We need to be committing to them as part of this next process. In the US, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act, which is making a difference across all of the sectors there. So I think that granularity is really beneficial to the country, but also incredibly beneficial to um, to the investment community. It's going so, to be thematic investing massively as well. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is we are, what we're lacking here is the political will. Well, I don't think I actually think it's I think it's more technical than that. Okay. I think I think it's a if you adopt a sort of technocratic approach to this mm. and are recognise that this is a way for you to. Um, almost like reduce the burden of the national budget on these issues because you'll be able to mobilize the finance and actually unless you get that clear consistent policy you're not going to 
um, you're not going to attract the finance. So a good way to kind of demonstrate you're in a good place is to put it in put it in the NDCs. So we could get that. We could get some signal here. I think I'd, it would be great if we can then continue that conversation around and with with the dialogue um, around that. And I think I think we can also do it on adaptation. I think that we are um, further behind on adaptation on working out what that looks like as a solution provider. Impacts we've got a so we one of our strategies we have a climate strategy. Um, and within that, we have 25% of the companies we're investing in or the, the actual assets under management are invested in adaptation solutions. There are quite a lot of people out there developing these taxonomies of what adaptation looks like. So I think there's potential to put that in. And um, yesterday I was talking about um, what incentives you can use policy wise to get people to do it. So one of the most exposed sectors is um, electricity companies because their power lines go everywhere. So the, the, that means they're going to expose, be exposed to all risks and most of them are relevant ones, uh, and some of the chronic ones as well. So um, in, the, in the United States, the Public Utilities Commission that operates at state level are now mandating uh, the electricity utilities to do physical climate risk assessments and to put in place mitigation measures so that they they build a resilient network. So that kind of there's a policy there's a policy um, response that can come on adaptation as well as on mitigation. That's great and very helpful. Thank you. And I think indeed all the conversations around transition I've been part of in the in the last few days have been focused actually around the granularity exactly. And yeah. how important is that we actually get to that very detail as to how we can possibly implement those pathways. Exactly. What are the timelines associated with those, etc. There's, there's actually just one other aspect yeah. of that, which is which is new for this call, which I'm quite excited about. Um, so we we've had a. Um, a already had a ministerial sort of dec or leaders declaration on food but next week um, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization is due to publish the first ever net zero roadmap for the global food system so the food system has, has generally been missing in action in terms of um, its appearance in NDCs even countries like the UK have really had a problem working out what to put in because effectively it's kind of there's behavioural shifts as well as changes in agricultural practice. But when I was working in Nigeria, you know, you can find that actually there are some really good ways of kind of improving supply chains. So in Nigeria, what they were trying to do was get solar powered refrigeration for to get more produce from the farms to the markets without it spoiling on the way. So there are some quite smart things that you can do. But I think if we can, we, we, we've got a good idea what to do with the energy system. We don't really know what to do with the food system. And I think if we can, if that if that roadmap can have the same impact that the IEA has had with its scenarios and roadmaps, then we could get that granularity you just talked about. We could get that seen in the food system as well, which would be incredible. The, the president of the World Trade Organization, actually, who is from Nigeria, I think, um, did say the other day at an event that we countries will have to start thinking about exactly from uh, for the food system, have to start thinking about what is environmentally friendly for them to produce because that's going to have to result in a major shift in terms of actually food production globally um, and that's the only one way we can actually transition into a sustainable food system going forward so yeah uh, in science we're thinking about exactly that you have to probably change what you produce and we see that a lot for example in west africa with impacts 
on Ghanaian levels with the very low production of cocoa, for example, because of climate change. So clearly we're going to see more signals of that. Exactly. So the food and the food system is a is it's features in the Sharm El Sheikh adaptation agenda, which I don't know whether listeners to the podcast are familiar with it, but that was a really important thing that came out of COP27. It actually started to identify some goals and some areas of focus. So the most obvious sectors to focus on are water and food, but actually trying to to work out how we break down adaptation into something more meaningful. So I think I think food is a, a really interesting space to to get those trade-offs. Think about well, not trade-offs, but think about the synergies and um, and how the specific problems we're trying to address. And and what do you think is the role of if you like more impact focused investors? in terms of contributing to, to climate solutions and their role, if you like, in the discussions here, so to accelerate progress towards more low carbon economy? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a definitely potential. I wouldn't say it's impact investors. I'd say it's all investors. Yeah. There is a potential for them to get, there's, there's an interest in them getting more involved. So I think people have often sort of felt that the the two communities speak slightly different languages and they don't quite, you know, that there's a, a lack of understanding between them. I think I think that's closing, but it's really good to see more efforts happening around establishing that dialogue. So I think one of the things that um, negotiators and public policymakers generally don't fully understand is um, the approach of investors to risk and how they view policy risk and country risks and all of those sorts of aspects and how that can mean that projects just just don't happen and investments don't happen so i took part in a um took part in a dialogue with there's a there was what's called the fourth fourth dialogue on public private climate finance between the um the investment community and the negotiators um and that was really great it was really good to have a chance to kind of explain some of the things I've just been talking about on, you know, why is policy really relevant to an investor and therefore why actually the negotiators and the parties have agency here and they can do things in the negotiations that will help accelerate that stuff. And in the same way, we need to have those dialogues with governments about the types of policies they're going to introduce. So, um, in the UK, uh, back in the late 2000s, we had something called the Low Carbon Finance uh, Group that was pulled together in order to work out how to de-risk investment in offshore wind, which led to the um, contract for differences and various other aspects of the, the UK policy landscape that basically shared the risk between government and investors and came up with a, a really smart kind of efficient way of guaranteeing a, a price to investors that actually has ended up as the technology has reduced to not being a subsidy it's just a guarantee floor price but it doesn't actually buy it because the price is already um the price the the the, 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 the system works so it, it's just a guarantee that never uses money from the public purse and actually investors pay money back into the government at the moment because the because the way the price is working anyway really smart piece of policy designed and co-created by investors with government to achieve an outcome both wanted. And when it came out, 
the auctions have changed recently because of the uh, interest rates and cost of inflation. But when it came out, investors were queuing around the block to be part of it because they had confidence in the process. So we've got to repeat that kind of dialogue now across different parts of the economy. And actually, it's one thing I'm really positive that the UK government's done recently. They, they've got something called the Net Zero Council that impacts this part of where they're trying to do that sector by sector roadmaps and then think about what are the barriers to investment and how do we do that? So I think there's an interest in having that dialogue with the private sector and it's happening in the negotiations, which is great, but it's also happening and needs to happen to support the, the national policies. Yeah, and funnily enough, Steve Wager from Aviva Investors was just saying downstairs that the negotiators are not finance experts. Yes, some of them are economists, but they're not finance experts, they're policy experts, and therefore they need investors. They're actually welcoming the input from investors to sort of get to those more practical solutions that you're talking about and this, um, and this really smart ideas. I guess kind of linked to, to that, obviously, there's the flip side of that, where investors basically are saying we really need governments and policymakers to lead the conversation. We sort of need a guarantee, as you say, in terms of what's going ahead. So I guess what are the policies, if you like, and the regulations in your view that have to be prioritised um, in terms of implementation in order to actually achieve some sort of meaningful progress? And I guess, again, how can investors, if you like, influence that? So the way we've been looking at this is we've sort of broken down the policies into three buckets. So um, there is a set of policies, there's a set of sectors where we actually know what we need to do. And the, the problems are not to do with pricing of technologies, but they are, uh, they're more around practical barriers. So um, to scaling things up and to pace. So one of the things that people have talked about this COP being is it's about speed. Yeah. So if you want things to move up at speed, you're going to have to deal with these barriers. So that would be something like the build, the decarbonisation of the electricity grids, the build up of renewables, where the barriers are really to do with um, permitting and planning. Uh, to actually make sure that you can kind of speed up and, and speeding up grid connection, but also anticipatory investment in the size of the grid and the type of grid you're going to need that will have to, it's possible to do it with um, renewables and storage alone. We now know that's possible, but you need to, you're going to need to invest in the grid itself to ensure that it's fit for purpose for a, a different style of, it, of generation. So, um, and electric vehicles would be another example uh, of that where consumer demand is there, um, the supply of vehicles is there, that the costs are now coming down because they're being mass produced in China very efficiently. What we need is more confidence in recharging infrastructure and we need, you know, basically every petrol forecourt needs to have fast charges on it. So that needs to be incentivized by government. Um, so that's the first category. Um, I'll speed up a bit to the other two. So the second one would be where we've got a complex problem that is either that we know what we need to be doing, but it's it's complicated. And it's either complicated because the technologies are not cost competitive or because there's a another market failure. There's complexity in the market. That means um, you've got a chicken and egg situation because 
there's no demand coming from the market um, and therefore the supply chain has not been built. So you can put the hard to abate sectors and hydrogen in that area, but you'd also I'd also put in things like retrofitting buildings in the UK, because at the moment people are offering, for example, there are financial products being offered for green mortgages, but there's no and low low cost loans, but there's no demand to do it because people don't really understand what they need to do. Uh, they think it's all going to be too expensive. The payback time is not going to be fast enough. And it doesn't pass the get off the sofa test at the moment because there's no incentive for you to do it. So what we need in those areas are for government to lean in and pump prime those markets, uh, either by providing subsidies for low cost production or maybe some regulation for people to use a certain percentage of different fuels or you know incentives for consumers to, to be doing things around their homes. And then there's the third area, which I would call the sort of known unknowns. And that's where we're looking at things like nature-based solutions and how we finance greenhouse gas removals uh, and maybe some of the aspects of the food, the food sector as well. So we need different types of policy responses to each of those for say greenhouse gas removals we don't need that to happen at scale now but we'll need it to happen at scale in 15 years time and at the moment the investment that's going into it is a fraction of what we were investing in solar 15 years ago so how do we kind of speed that up so that's research development and deployment rd and d funding going into to some of that and some of it is actually just better understanding of the, the nature of the change that needs to be made. So it's a kind of research challenge. So, yeah, there's yeah. different types of policies for different yeah. different stages of technology maturity. But there is certainly a huge role by governments and policymakers Absolutely. to play, and also in terms of education of the general public, right? Because to your point around green mortgages, I think we're lacking massively, even in a country like the UK, where it's so well developed, Actually, the take on that will be very low, not only because people don't understand the financial parameters of it, but because they don't, they don't understand how important that is in the whole climate conversation in a way. Yeah, they did, but, but also, you know, who would actually want to, who would want to increase the size of their mortgage with, yeah. current in, with current interest rates? So how do you kind of link, these things tend to work better where you've got a, a, some sort of link to, if you achieve, achieve an outcome, then actually you get some kind of discount, you get some kind of support to to do the extra thing that is not just good for you but it's good for the planet um yes that's um that that, that i think that i think that sort of encapsulates what how you have a different policy levers that you pull in different mm. places now you might notice i haven't talked about carbon pricing at all there no but so, it's your so favorite it, subject but well, it's not it's, it's not my favorite subject but the reason i haven't talked about it is because i think you know, I think what I when I was first doing this, I just thought, oh, you just need this carbon price and then the whole system will fix itself. But I think as I've sort of got older and greyer, I've realised that we need a more focused sectoral approach. So the carbon price can help you get some of the financing right, but you're going to need that those barriers I was talking about. You're going to need to go in and focus on specific policies to address those. And those will have to be tailored to individual sectors. It's something Simon Sharp writes about in his um, great book, Five Times Faster. So, uh, the second person quoting the same book in those podcast series this week. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good book. And Simon's got, it's, it's very readable. And Simon's also worked in this negotiation process. So um, he's, he's communicated, he's communicated very well. I mean, in Europe, we've got, um, in Europe, we've got, you know, it's, it, it's taken some time to get up to the 100 euro price, but that's providing a huge price signal. Um, the C-band when it comes in is actually going to be encouraging others to kind of 
have an equivalent level of stringency. We need, we know the, the Chinese have got their system out there. They're going to expand it. They're going to improve the stringency. So people are, and other people at India has introduced a, a, a system this year. They, when I was working with them back in the day, they had something called Perform Achieve Trade um, that was slightly flawed, but um, anyway, they've moved this forward. Um, there's there's a lot going on, but I, the other thing we haven't talked about at all, and I just I mentioned it. I'm sure some other people that you speak to will mention it. Is the relevance of the Bridgetown Agenda for developing countries? So, it, this is not just about the voluntary carbon market can start to move things forward, can start to get people interested. That's what CDM did a lot of, and also provide some much needed revenue for nature based um, markets. But I do think that you're going to have to developing countries will need to develop the kind of policy framework I was talking about, but they're also going to need something else to de-risk those investments. So I do think the MDB reform and the work that Mia Motley's done and the Barbados team and, and Avi there, who I've had a couple of meetings with here, I do think that's really exceptionally useful and, and a really important way to address the issue. So um, yeah, we've got to recognise you need to you need to de-risk those investments in those countries as well as having this kind of supportive policy framework with with demonstration that there's going to be that consistency of policy in those countries in the same way that we need that signal from developed countries. I think it's been recognised now since obviously the COP in Glasgow that uh, I think the vulnerable countries have been much more vocal, have become much more vocal, and that's been widely accepted that we need to do something about those countries. And I think this COP is perhaps a real step moving forward. Yeah. Um, I think we're not there yet, though, in terms of getting into this kind of granular actions in terms of how we're going to support. Them. I think you're right. I think I think developing countries. I was talking to someone uh, out there today that so that there's a phrase around enabling environments that is effectively it's what we what we consider to be that kind of really clear policy supporting framework that provides you with confidence and the subsidies where needed, but clarity around what the transition looks like. You know, all, all of that provides great confidence to an investor and impact is really, you know, as a solution, we want to see markets grow in these solutions that we invest in. So that's why we do this work. Um, for negotiating countries, they read enabling environment as them taking on some kind of commitment to do more and when, to do more and and taking the pressure off developed countries to take action and i i just hope we can kind of move beyond that and um recognize that you know the ndc process is around contributions a lot of the finance that i'm talking about is going to go to developed countries because that's where a lot of the emission reductions have to take place because we have to rewire those economies entirely developing countries also need to massively transition and so they need to have money that will go to them as well but if if they're um if the if they don't put these kind of clear policies in place then people just won't know what to invest in there and it'll just be um it they'll still be will still be struggling to make them attractive capital is mobile yeah. we can't do anything about that you know i really want to see the capital go into this transition and these opportunities but if we don't 
build this framework, it will go to IT or something like that. And people will invest in something else and we will end up in a worse situation in 10 years time. And we'll have a much more disorderly, messy um, transition that will, you know, will be less advantageous to everyone. So we kind of need to get on with it and put these frameworks in place now. And I think we're a bit still unclear in terms of the narrative because there are quite a few people even today, I'm not going to mention who meant basically pointing at the fact that, you know, the most vulnerable countries have to do their part as well. And I think what perhaps people are referring to is your point about making sure they've got the framework and making sure that they've got transition plan in place as well. Whereas they sort of a little bit take it perhaps more defensive. There's a bit of a loss of translation kind of communication. I think we just need to be much clearer on both sides to make sure that we come up with the best outcomes for actually the entire world and certainly saving those countries um but also making sure that we move forward in a sort of very orderly way as you say that kind of um serves investors and wider stakeholders as well there's also the so the the, the issue in this process is actually around building trust mm, and exactly. and that's a that's that's actually really important for the national implementation too but it's especially important well, sorry, for the national implementation. So the trust you need to build is the trust between the policymakers, the corporates and the investors, because you need to demonstrate that no one's trying to get a quick buck off anybody else and they're not trying to, you know, ask for more than they need. So you need to have a common understanding of the economics of the sector and what's a reasonable rate of return and all of that kind of stuff. So you have to have trust in that and that comes from knowledge. The trust in this place is around is around keeping promises. Yeah. And I actually think that's what was so good about the loss and damage, being able to start with the loss and damage. Now, um, 700 million has gone into that already. That was yesterday afternoon's number. Actually, I think maybe it's gone up a little bit more. So it's a fraction of what's needed. But the World Bank, it's been agreed the World Bank's going to run it. Um, there is a system now in place. And I think so. I think getting that done is helpful. Apparently, we potentially the OECD is saying that the 100 billion um, figure, again, a drop in the ocean and a little bit of an irrelevance in terms of the amount of money that's needed for the transition. You know, we need um, four trillion a year on the energy transition and we need um, around a, a, a hundreds of billions, I think it's 800 billion a year on um on adaptation. So the 100 billion doesn't really make a difference, but it was a promise that was made and therefore it needs to be kept. And I think that's what what you need to have in in the system is this. So like you say, people, there's things are being, when things are lost in translation, then that does destroy trust. No one's asking Palau or, you know, islands in the Caribbean and forcing them to kind of go through this process. But what you could end up having is a if we agree to a phase out of fossil fuels, then actually, developing countries that are dependent on those fossil fuels, if they don't have an alternative energy generation system um, in those countries, then they will, their transition will be really difficult. Um, so, and we saw that with Nigeria, where they tried to switch off the fuel subsidies sort of overnight, it was very disruptive. So um, doing your part doesn't mean, it just means preparing yourself yeah. for the transition rather than doing kind of more than your fair share. I'm waiting for the US to look at itself in the mirror and come up with a 
better answer for the loss and damage fund because it's just been really depressing in terms of what they've put it in my view. But that's yeah. a personal view. Yeah. Um, last question, I guess. If you are really optimistic and idealistic in a way, what, in your view, is the best outcome of this COP? Okay, the best outcome from the COP would be five things. So I would like, I would love to see those decarbonisation targets universally adopted, and but with real sort of uh, really clear goals that can then get cascaded into national um, strategies. I'd like to see a real clarity coming on food from this net zero food map. And I'd like to see that incorporate things like the halting of deforestation by 2030. So again, we've got a really, really clear idea of what the, the options are out there. Precision agriculture, alternative proteins, you know, what, are, what, what what's the mix going to look like uh, in the food system? Um, Recognising it's a first step. So clarity there. Third thing is um, a, a deal on phase down of fossil phase out of fossil fuels. So clarity about what that's going to what that looks like and 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 an agreement that people are happy to to run with. If we could get that, that would be that's my high watermark yeah. thing. And that's the one I think is I'm least optimistic about, mm -hmm. but I would love to see it there. So you asked me for my perfect outcome yeah. and that's part of it. The um the fourth is um much more clarity about what we do about adaptation and um some of that could come with a global goal. I don't think a global goal is part of these negotiations, but I don't. I think that global goal just needs to be. It needs to reflect the multi-dimensional nature of this. This is not about having a net zero goal. This is about having a number of aspects that we have. We got some stuff in the adaptation agenda from Sharm El Sheikh that could be imported into this. I don't actually think the goal is the most important thing, though. I think it's just about better improving understanding around what that looks like so that it can then be reflected in the national plans. And then my final ask is that we all of the above get we get a mechanism to put that into national policy making and we end up with clarity about um, how we're going to translate what we agree internationally into into individual countries. Excellent. Thank you very much, Chris. Absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great conversation. Fantastic insights. I hope you enjoyed it too. Yeah, no, it was great. It's, um, it's really nice to sort of take a step out of the hubbub and, <laughs> and have a chance to think about um, the overall picture. Thank you and thank you to all our listeners as well and do tune in for our next episode of our COP28 series. Thank you and goodbye.